Now, if you if you if you ask people today, what what are the some of the significant attributes of God? You know, some of the most common responses would be, "Well, He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. He is all powerful. He is loving. He is merciful." There are all kind of attributes that we see of God, but maybe His most important attribute, God, is knowable. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. All right, uh, let's get going here. Uh, Father, we are truly grateful for uh, another day. Uh, as we get to the end of a, of a work week, we're so grateful for um, just all that you blessed us with. Lord, we truly do acknowledge that all that we are, all that we have, uh, everything that we accomplish, the talents, the gifts, the abilities, they all come from your hands, Father. And we give you thanks. I pray that you would keep us humble, uh, that you would give us wisdom, uh, that you would, this morning, would speak into our lives, Father. But we just acknowledge our great need for you. And we thank you as we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Andrew, good morning. Hey there. Slip in without me knowing. I, I didn't see you slip in. Well, you were praying hard. Okay, that's right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Jeremiah 31 is where we're going to start this morning. Go down to verse 31. I need somebody to read that for us. Read 31 to 34. Drew Scott, do you, you think you could do that? Yeah. All right, that's, that's uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. And before you read this, uh, let me just tell you this. There are many scholars, Tim Keller included, <laughs> who believe this is one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible, particularly because in the New Testament, if you go to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, you read the exact same verses verbatim. In other words, these were written 700, 800 years before Christ, and come on in, Ben, and... Uh, and yet and you're gonna see the significance of this i'm we're gonna we're gonna walk through it and talk about it um and of course you know what a prophecy is a prophecy is something that's kind of a prediction and all the prophecies are in the old testament and they're fulfilled in the new And of course, there are the, the, the most significant prophecies in the Old Testament are what they call messianic prophecies about the Messiah who's going to come. So, Drew, if you don't mind, I'd be very grateful if you would read 31 to 34. To 34. Through 34. The days are coming, declares, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive them their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Thank you. Guys, there's a lot in here. In fact, I'll be honest, we haven't, we, we, we've run over every, every time this week. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to guess out here by eight, <clears throat> but um, let's just kind of wade into it. Uh, what we learn here in 30, verse 31, he tells us that a new covenant is coming in the future. And we'll talk about covenants in a minute. Which, may, if that's true, then that means the current covenant is a different covenant, which we now call the old covenant. We have a new covenant and we have an old covenant. And in 33 and 34, he said, you know, how will God in the future, he says, I'm going to put my law, I'm not doing this right now, but in the future, I'm going to put the law in their minds, and I'm going to write it on their hearts. Now, how, how do you do that? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us an insight into that. Um, when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 2, it says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, you are cared for by us. Listen to this. It says, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And it's not written on tablets of stone, but it's written on your heart. He called it the tablets of human hearts. So right there. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. 3, 2, and 3. 2 Corinthians 3, 2, and 3. Now, I'm sure that those that were that listened to Jeremiah's words didn't get this. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit that would be coming in the future. But that's what he's referring to. And th this is a huge deal, guys. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit is not really unleashed until Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so he's talking about something that there really is kind of foreign to them. Now, <clears throat> um, the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. You'll read about the Spirit of God sometimes in the Old Testament. But he wasn't prevalent. He was kind of in the background. And then remember when Jesus comes along, he says several times, uh, it's to your advantage that I leave, because when I leave, the Father's going to send the Spirit. And so Jeremiah is telling this hundreds of years before it happens, a new covenant is coming. And uh, we understand it because we live under the new covenant. And then in verse 34, which we're going to spend a good bit of time on in chapter in verse 34, as we, we really get to see one of the most significant attributes of God. Now, if you if you if you ask people today, what, what are the some of the significant attributes of God? You know, some of the most common responses would be, well, he is a righteous God, he is a holy God, he is all powerful, he is loving. He is merciful. They're all kind of attributes that we see of God. He's, he's a, a just God. But I don't think many people think about this, this uh, attribute that I want to throw out on the table that I think maybe, as far as we're concerned, maybe his most important attribute, one of them. And this attribute that I'm referring to, which he refers to in uh, Jeremiah speaks of in 34, God is knowable. I ask you to think about that. He's not a God that's hidden. 
He wants to be known. He reveals himself so that he can be known. And this scripture, this prophecy is considered the classic text on knowing God. But before we talk about that and really look at that, I think it would be worth talking about uh, this covenant that God had with Israel. I think it's worth doing. And let me talk, let's talk about a covenant. Most people think a covenant is kind of a promise, which it is. But it's really much more, it's used in the Bible, it's much more significant than that. And let me tell you what I mean. Uh, a covenant, as God speaks of a covenant in the Bible, it's a relationship based on a legal commitment. Now, if you look at verse 32, it says, God says, I was a husband to the Jewish people. Now, why does he use that terminology? A husband to the Jewish people. It's a, basically, it's a human analogy because I think everybody has a good understanding or has an understanding, maybe not good. Everybody has an understanding of marriage. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of central to our culture. And it's a great example of one of the few covenants in life that's based on a legal commitment. Think about marriage. You have to get a license for it to be legal. Right? I, my wife, a week before we got, she got the license yet? I, I forgot. You got, we got to have that. Um, you have to have somebody um, that has the legal authority to marry you. And I'm learning, apparently that's becoming easier and easier to do. Um, and so it becomes a legally binding relationship, not just in the sight of God, but in the sight of the law. And when a person gets divorced, that's a legal termination of a marriage. They have to go through a process. They need lawyers. And a judge has to approve it. So marriage is a covenant relationship. Now, guys, we don't have any other any other human covenant relationships. Mike Graham and I have been, been friends for 60-something <laughs> years. We go back that far. But we don't have a covenant relationship. You don't have a covenant relationship with your kids. You have a, I mean, they're important, but it says they're going to leave you. And they're going to enter into their own covenant relationship. And then God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And he made this covenant when he brought them out of Egypt. And yet he appears to the people in, in the Old Testament through what theologians call theophanies. In other words, which means the God in the Old Testament he manifested himself miraculously. You got the burning bush. You got the pillars of fire. You got the uh, parting of the Red Sea. And God spoke to the people through Moses. He gave them the law through Moses. He, uh, he, he, the, the people approached him. They couldn't go directly to him. They had to go through the temple, through the high priest. 
And this was the covenant that God made with them. I will be your God. I will fulfill my responsibilities. But you have to, I'm looking to you to, as part of the covenant, to serve me, to love me, to obey me. Now, the old covenant broke down. Why did it break down? people were unfaithful. They turned from him. Not because the covenant was imperfect. The people were. And so he's now telling them a new covenant's coming. And that's what he's saying here in Jeremiah. But it's repeated again by the writer of the book of Hebrews. If you want to read about this covenant, we probably should have maybe done this, but um, Go read chapters 8 and 9 of, of Hebrews. You really learn a lot about the covenant. And basically, I think that the writer of the Hebrews did this so that the, he wanted the people of the new covenant to understand the old. Now, let me just stop here. I want to, I want to make some comments about just the, um, the old covenant and the new. All right? Uh, I think it's worth spending just a couple of minutes on and you'll find this interesting. Um, when you see the word testament, like the Old Testament, the word testament is another word for covenant. So the Old Testament is all about the Old Covenant. Of course, the New Testament is a picture of what happens with the New Covenant. And guys, this is what the old covenant is a working arrangement that God had with Israel. And he had chosen them to have a special relationship, right? They were his, what, quote, chosen people. And he took a few patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and from them, all their descendants kind of flowed from those three men and their families. And they created this great nation. And he gave them land, a specific place for them to live, Canaan, which, of course, is the huge area which we call the promised land. And he gave them his law to live by. And God was looking for their loyalty and their love and their obedience and their worship. But he says, if you keep, and they says, we will keep our covenant. We'll, we'll, we'll do our part. And God says, if you, if you do, I will bless you. And you can read in Deuteronomy about how he intended to bless them in the promised land and how he did bless them. But this is important to know. Like, this is really at the heart of kind of what we'll be talking a little bit about today. There's a lot to talk about today, guys. Um, but God established also for the people a sacrificial system because sin had entered the world. They were sinners, just like we are. But in this system... They had they, they sacrificed animals. 
In other words, they, the, really what happened, they shed the blood of animals. That was the main thing. And so what it allowed them to do, guys, was be, to be cleansed, hear this, temporarily. It was called atonement. It, was a, it, it covered their sin. But we're told in the Old and New Testament, the shedding of the blood of, 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 of goats and, and, uh, and lambs and sheep and, and, and bulls, the shedding of that blood cannot completely deliver us and really eradicate our sin. In, a, in, a, in essence, the people in the Old Testament were looking to the Messiah to do that. That would be the permanent elimination of sin. And that's what he talks about here. At some point, what does he say? When he gets right down to it, he says, I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's in the future, though. But in the interim, they had this temporary system of sacrifice. You know one of the problems with it was? They had to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. How often did they do it, Richard? You know, they, they would have these daily, they'd even, if you want daily, they would even, uh, you could sacrifice a little dove. And, but there was a big, there was one time a year that was just very significant. Everybody participated. And that was the Day of Atonement, which, which the Jewish people call Yom Kippur today, where they would all go to the temple. It's a good question. They would all go to the temple. They would all confess their sin before God. It was a time of, of real contriteness. And then you had this chief priest. The high priest is what they called it. And he would go into this little area up front called the Holy of Holies. It was this huge curtain that surrounded the altar and the mercy seat. And then there was another, and there was this big, old, thick, heavy curtain. They went to the top of the temple to the bottom. And then there was an outer curtain, and then there was the, the rest of the temple where everybody was. And, the only, and, and, and once a year, the high priest would enter into this little inner sanctum with the blood of the animals, and he would sprinkle it on the altar and all what they, and all what they call the mercy seat. And he would come in there once a year, and only he could come. And he came with the blood of the animals, and he did what he was supposed to do, and he got the hell out of there. Because he was meeting with the holy God. In fact, as someone pointed out, they tied a rope around him. Because if he basically was struck dead by God, they couldn't go in there, so but they could drag his body out. And then, of course, it was pointed out yesterday, famously, when Jesus dies and he says, it is finished, Lord, into thy hand I commit my spirit. You remember what happens to that curtain in the temple? Rips. It splits to from top to bottom. Because God is saying, you no longer have to do the sacrifice of the animals. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Now, Richard was young. Yeah, Dave. Was that also when the so-called scapegoat would be sent out and sent out into the end of the world? Yes, yes, that's a great point. 
they had what the, it was. That's where we get that term scapegoat. You know, they basically would put their hands on this goat, on these goats, and they'd send them out in the wilderness, which was part of the system, the part of the system of sacrifice. And that's where we get that word scapegoat now. Now, it's also interesting to know that salvation came to the people. As they went through this process, their sins were temporarily covered with the, with the knowledge that they would be permanently forgiven in the future. But their salvation came by grace. They, they put their faith in the system of sacrifice. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that people earn their salvation. That's an interesting, very interesting, um, I think, point to make. Um, but Jeremiah is telling them in these scriptures that we read, but something better is coming. The sacrificial system is going to be replaced in the future, and it was replaced immediately when Christ died on the cross. And in this new covenant, God said Israel is going to be restored. Sins will finally be forgiven permanently. And then it says this, and people will know God directly. You and I can go directly to God through Jesus. We don't need to go into a temple. We don't need a high priest. And, it said, and then he says, you know, we will have his law. I'll write it on your heart by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me stop here. Comment or questions? Any of, any of you guys, we got a big Zoom crowd this morning. Any of you Zoomers got anything you want to say or ask? Richard, yo, yes, um, he says, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Right. What's the distinction, and who who all is that covering? There were there were basically this is what he was talking about when the nation had been divided into two. You had uh, Judah and Israel, so they're all Jews. And is that the only people that he's got the new covenant with? Right. Now, just so you'll know, if you say you're a pagan, you can convert to Judaism. I mean, most people don't know that. You, they, they think you got to be born into Jude and, and uh, you have to be born a Jew. That's not right. You can convert to Judaism, and a lot of people did. In fact, if you read, you know, when you read like I, I, in Daniel, I think there are a lot of converts when you see. Incredible movement of God. Any other questions? Good question, Dave. Richard, I think it's important to know that knowing God is with your heart. Yeah. Not just your mind. I think yeah. it's going to the heart. The yeah, we're going to talk. Let, yeah, hold that thought, Charles. That's a good thought. Hold it for just a second. Um, let me just say this, guys. Uh, in this new covenant, <clears throat> And this is this is the, this is what makes the new covenant so great is that uh, God appears to the people. God appears to us through the person of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is referred to. If you read uh, Hebrews, he's referred to as our high priest because he goes to God, you know, on our behalf, so that we can basically have a relationship with him. But let me read to you these these two verses from Hebrews nine eleven and twelve. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In other words, 
he, he came to us not through, he said, the more perfect type of not made with hands by men. Let us just say it was not created by man and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He died, think about it, once and for all. He didn't, we, it's not like we have to do, he has to come, it's not like Jesus has to come every 10 years and get crucified. He did it once and for all. And there's a great verse that just I just thought about. It's not in my notes. I can find it. Well, never mind. I can't find it. But he, Peter talks about it. He died. The just died for the unjust, unjust so that we might have access to the Father. Now, um, And this is this is this is crucial. This is crucial. We're going to kind of move in a different direction. What God is saying in Jeremiah, guys, is that, and we're the beneficiaries of this. We weren't living back then with the idea that, well, we we we're not going to get to experience this. We're here. We're in the middle of the new covenant, and God is saying there's going to be a revolutionized relationship that you can have with me in the future. And in this new covenant, he says, a Christian, therefore, is someone who will know God directly. But let me, let me emphasize the word know. To know God. Guys, I really believe in one sense, <clears throat> if you ask if you ask me today, or let's say we ask anybody today. In fact, this would be, I, we're not going to do this, but it would be interesting uh, if I said, all right, everybody get out a piece of paper, get your pen out, and I want you to write for me, what is a Christian? Give me your definition of a Christian. Now, we might get all kinds of answers that are all correct, but I think one of the best answers would be a Christian is someone who has a personal relationship with God, Christ. He knows him. And we'll talk in a minute about knowing him. Charlie made a great point. It's, it's more than just the head, it's the heart. And we're going, we'll, we'll, I'm glad you said that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't use that terminology, but it's right. Um, but listen to this. You know, I think this can be easily glossed over. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer to the Father, in John 17, he's getting, I mean, he's, he's just moments from being taken. And he's praying to God. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that thy Son might glorify thee. And in verse 3, he says, Lord, this is eternal life. Of course, he's just, he just said in verse 2 that he may give people eternal life. In verse 3, he says, and this is what eternal life's all about, that they may know thee. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou has sent. So I, I think, guys, as we think about what is a true Christian, I think we need to be thinking in terms of this relationship that we have with God. And we're going to talk about this idea of knowing him. 
But Tim Keller says, knowing God is the watershed issue that sets apart Christians from everyone else. And that's knowing him. Not, not just necessarily believing in him, which would be probably a definition of people, a person who believes in Jesus Christ. And guys, I, I've learned this week, we don't have time to go through all this scripture. I'll give it to you um, if you want to write it down. There's just a lot of scripture about knowing God, but there's one that, that just stands out to me that we've talked about many times. And this is to me a scripture that's just real, real important. I've, I've known, I can think of two men I know who are really devoted Christians today who will tell you these verses in Matthew 7 turn their life around because they thought they were Christians and they weren't. And if you remember in Matthew 7, in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember that? And Jesus says, you know, on that day, on the judgment day, there are going to many people who are going to start arguing with God and say, you mean I'm not in? They're going to say, but Lord, I cast out demons in, in your name. Lord, I did many wonderful works. And I did them in your name. Lord, I, and remember what Jesus says to, what he's going to say to them? Depart from me. What? I never knew you. That, that, that just strikes me powerfully. <clears throat> it's this idea of, of, of knowing God. Now, let me just give you some other verses if you want to write them down. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. Titus 1, 16. And my favorites are Philippians 3, 8 and 3, 10. And that's where Paul says, I lost every, when I became a Christian, he says, I lost everything. But everything I lost is rubbish when you compare it with the incredible value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've, so, I've lost everything for that relationship. Now, this is kind of interesting. We're talking about us knowing God. And us knowing God is different from my knowing you. But there's also a lot of similar, similarities. But just the, the way we go about it, we have, I can look at Mike and Charlie and Day, and I, you know, we, we can get to know each other. We can talk. But, but let's do talk about the issue of getting to know someone. And let's think about this in comparison to knowing God. How do you get to know somebody? Spend time with them. That's the number one answer I've gotten. You spend time with them. Okay, we spend time. You spend time with them, but what do you do when you spend time with them? Talk to them. Ah, you have conversation. Conversation is the way you get to know somebody. But it's not just one sided. We get to listen to him too. Yeah, you can't have a relationship if only one person's doing the talking. Well, that's right. spot on, Al. But think about. I think this can be instructive as we think about getting to know our wives. Now, I'm curious, and I'm looking around here, and I believe uh, most people in this group are married, and it uh, looks like that's also true for these all these guys on the, on the screen. Uh, I'm curious. 
Did you know anything about your wife before you had you first met her? I mean, before you went out on a date with her? Did you know anything about her or you, it was just a, a pure blind date? I've had a number of it. Did you know your wife before you went out with her, Charlie? Nope. I knew a few things about my wife, but we had never had a conversation. We'd never had a conversation. In fact, it's funny. I tried to get her to go eat lunch with me. She says, no, I can't do it at lunch, but I'll go to dinner with you, <laughs> which was good. I'm glad she did. Um, but think about it. I didn't know anything. I, 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 knew some, I knew a few things about her because I knew her sister and I knew her brother-in-law. But I didn't know her. But, you know, when you think about it, when you become a Christian and you enter into a relationship with Christ, you don't know him. You become a Christian, though, usually because you've learned what he's done for you at the cross. And that we're called to enter into a relationship with him. But you really didn't know him. Kind of like we didn't really know our wives when we first started going out. And then you go out with them, and what do you do? Uh, you exchange information. First date, particularly. What do you do? Where'd you go to school? Tell me about your family. Yeah, just basic stuff. And then if you go out with them a second time, generally you go a little deeper, right? You ask a little deeper questions because you already kind of know a lot of what's on the surface. And then you go out with them again. And what happens over time? The relationship, the knowledge of the person, knowing it, 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 you get greater depth to it. And you know them at a deeper level. And then what happens? You keep pursuing. What happens? Well, you, 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 get, you begin to love them. That's always a great revelation when you realize, I love this person. And of course, the problem is always, well, what do I do with that? I mean, am I, do I need to tell her that? Or what, what, do, you, what, what do you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> but, but think about that. You, know, you can't really love somebody I mean, really love them, unless you know them. But I will throw this in. We can have a love for Jesus, some kind of love for Jesus, when we think about what he's done for us. I mean, that has to, that has to give you some kind of appreciation for him. But anyway, um, <clears throat> That's kind of the basic, the basics of human relationships. But I think that's it's a picture kind of, of, of the process of knowing God. It's just a little more difficult because we don't hear an audible voice from him. But we do hear from him through the scriptures. And this is something I'm learning. I, I continue to learn, and this is what I encourage men to do, is, guys, as you read the Bible, we talked about this a week ago, two weeks ago. When you read the Bible, the worst thing you can do is approach it on the basis of, well, I got to read my Bible today. It need, we need to approach God with, Lord, I want to hear from you today. I want to hear your voice as I read the Bible. And this is what's been so helpful to me. 
is you got to read it slowly. You can't rush through it. You got to read it slowly with the, with the mentality. He wants to speak for me. Cause remember the word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4, 11. It's not a dead book that you're reading. It's living and active. And he speaks in and through us or speaks in and to us through the word of God. And so whatever I read, and I, 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 I like to read, I'm just sharing with y'all what I do. I, I read usually a chapter in the New Testament. Then I read some from the Old Testament. And then I, I just have a number of verses that I like. I mean, I'm talking about hundreds of verses that I like to meditate on and really think through, look at important words. And the whole process takes about 30 minutes. But as somebody pointed out, I think Al pointed out, God doesn't want it just to be a one-way relationship. Um, he wants us to speak to him. And that's why prayer is so important. And I'll just throw this out real quick. Um, and to me, just personally, and we, 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 I don't know if y'all, I'm not sure how many of you were even there because we have a lot of new people, a lot of you on. Uh, we did several years ago a four or five part series on prayer. Um, and it's a lot of it is condensed into this prayer guide. And we've got plenty of them. If anybody wants one, they can have one. But to me, the most significant part of prayer um, is the praise and worship and the most significant and, the, and I find the most enjoyable and really the easiest way to do that is by every day spending time giving thanks to God. There's so much that we should be thankful for. Starting with the gift of life, um, your health, your spouse, your kids. Think of all that you, I mean, the resources he's blessed you with. And you know the great thing about Thanksgiving, and if you want these guys, you can come pick one up. Uh, it's the foundation of humility. Foundation of humility is recognizing that all that you are and all that you have, all that you've accomplished is a gift from God. And when you recognize that, instead of being arrogant, which some, arrogance comes very natural to us, it, it's, it's, you know, it basically it's the basis of being humble. Humility does not, not come natural. That's why you have to intentionally, be intentional about this, spend time giving thanks to God. That's all I'm going to say on prayer. We could, I, I, like I said, we, had four, we spent four weeks talking about it. So, uh, to, But obviously, the combination of listening to God through the scriptures and talking to him in prayer is the basis for building a relationship with him. And let, let me throw this out as well. Um, another way, going back to your wife, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but I'm going to throw this out as an idea for you. Um, one of the ways I've really gotten to know my wife, other than the conversation that we have, is by observing her life, uh, watching her act and react, watching her raise our 
being heavily involved in raising our children, um, watching her under pressure. I mean that, and same same thing for her with me. And so I think when you observe somebody's life for, for years and years and years, you, you that's part of getting to know that person. And the reason I share that is. I think it's important that we really observe God because I think we can learn something about him. And let me tell you what I mean. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews, really in the Bible, is, is, is I love Hebrews 1.3. It says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Listen to this. He is the exact representation of his nature. Somebody's called. Oh, the son. Oh. Hey, I'm I, I'm I'm in the middle of teaching. I'll call you when I'm done. See you. I make it a priority. I always answer my kids' phone calls just to make sure that let them know that they're important. Um, but anyway, um, when you really think about it. Um, Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. Now, guys, do we realize the significance of that? So we can basically look at the life of Jesus and really understand the nature of God. So I'm about to finish my... Yeah, you know, I go through the New Testament and then I start over and go through it again. And, and then I read the Old, Te Old Testament. I'm not saying that I read the Old Testament every day as well. But when I start this year back on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I really am going to approach it on the basis of, Lord, what can I learn about you as I observe you? Because you, you get to see Jesus in action. What can we learn about God through the life of Christ? I'll keep you posted on how it goes. But I encourage you to think about doing it yourself. Now, we're, we're, we're going to run out of time. I, want, I, I really want to get into this last part. Very important, I think. And by the way, to get to know God, there's two other things that you that are needed. One is consistency. In other words, you got to be committed to spending time with him. I mean, how well would you know your wife today if you spent one day a week with her? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't work. There needs to be that consistently, that daily consistency. And then it just, it just requires time. And the more time that goes by, I think the, the, the deeper your relationship will go with him. But I, let me just say this. It's not easy. And it's, 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 it evolves. And you got to stick to it. You just got to kind of continue to pursue him, continue to seek him. Now, let me jump into my final point that I want to make. What is the last thing he says? Who's still in Jeremiah? Are you still in Jeremiah? What is the very last thing he says in verse 34, Drew? We'll remember their sins no more. Yeah, I'm going to forgive their sins and I'm going to remember them no more. Guys, this is the heart of human salvation. Not church membership, which is important. Don't get me wrong. It's not doing good works, which is important. 
It's the forgiveness of sin. I was telling a guy, going through the investigative study with him right now, and this week we met, and we go, we're going through the gospel, and we talk about, you know, Christ came to die for our sins so that we can receive forgiveness. And he got that. And I said, you know, I think this is really misunderstood by people. And you've heard me say this before. If you go out on the streets of Birmingham and ask the question, how, who goes to heaven? One of the most common responses will be good people go to heaven. Or some might say those people who believe in God will go to heaven. But when you get to the core of it, who goes to heaven? Forgiven people go to heaven. People who are forgiven of their sins. And this young man looked at me and said, I get that, but how do you know that your sins are forgiven? And I said, we'll come, we're getting to that. We'll get to that. But see, that's, that's, this is, I find so many people don't get this. They don't understand this. Um, but listen, this is worth listening to. I stumbled upon this about a week ago, reading about Zacharias. You remember Zacharias? Zacharias was John the Baptist's father. And in, in, in Luke, you know, he loses his ability to speak. And then he, because anyway, he goes, I'm doubting God. Anyway, he gets it back. And this is what he says. And in verse 77, he says, he's talking about John. And you will give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, you see this throughout the scripture. And yet I think it's become... It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. We've said it so many times, we just kind of don't take, we kind of take it for granted. This is the heart of the Christian faith. I love what Paul says in, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He says, he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. But like I said, I think we kind of, we easily gloss over it. And when I think how many people, when they think about the Christian faith, think about this, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, I'm going to be, I'm going to go quick here. There's some interesting scripture in the Old and New Testament that I think is worth, is worth us considering. Um, I have about seven or eight different translations of the Bible. Okay, and I looked up this one verse in every single one of them. The one that was most significant that I think said it best was from the Amplified. And let me just read this. This is from Psalm 130, verses three and four. God says, if you, Lord, or the psalmist says, if you, Lord, should keep on account, uh, if you keep an account of, and if you treat us according to our sins, O Lord, who could stand, who could survive? The answer is nobody. And even the great theologian and Bible scholar, Matthew Henry, in making reference to verse 3, he says, you know, in this verse, you see the glorious majesty of God, but you also see the dread of his wrath. And he says, you know, we cannot justify ourselves before God. We cannot plead non-guilty, not guilty. If God deals with us in strict justice, we are undone. We're toast if we receive nothing but the justice of God. This is why it is essential that we have received God's forgiveness. 
But the problem is, and this is the beauty of the entire gospel, this is, there's a problem and then there's a solution. The problem is, Psalm 49, 8 says, <clears throat> the redemption of a man's soul is very costly. The redemption of your soul, which leads to the forgiveness of your sin, it's very costly. Guys, and you and I don't have the resources to pay for it. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Turn, if you would, to Revelation 22. Last book of the Bible. You can't find Revelation, guys. You're in a world of hurt. <laughs> last book of the Bible. Revelation, go to chapter 22, which is the last chapter of the Bible. <clears throat> and go to verse 17, which is one of the last verses in the Bible. I'll never give everybody a second to get there. Al, you got it? You want to read? Revelation 22, verse 17. 22, 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let, him, let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes uh, take the free gift of the water of life. Read those last Five or six words again, Al. Um, take the free gift of the free gift of the water of life. The free gift of the water of life. Now, some translations say it a little different. They all say the same. Mine says basically take the water of life without cost. Does anybody say anything different? I know some said, one, one translation says, take the water of life without pay. You don't have to pay anything for it. And so, if, so what does that mean? Salvation is not something you earn. It's what? It's a free gift. That's incredible. It's a free gift. And you see this taught throughout the Bible. You know, one of Significant verses in Romans said, "All have sinned and fall all, for all have sinned and fall short, and all fall short of the glory of God." But we're justified as a gift by His grace. Romans six twenty three says, "The wages of sin is death." But what? God's free gift. God's free gift. Free gift is eternal life. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which is the, the verses that turned Martin Luther around in his theology, it says, we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. It is a free gift of God. Now, guys, what do you do with the gift? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> you receive it. And <clears throat> and, and, and a... And a, a, a well, let me just say, <laughs> you ever gotten a gift that you didn't want or didn't need? <laughs> uh, this is a gift that we desperately need. I'm sure you've got gifts that you really wanted and that you loved. And what do you do? You make it a part of your life. You bring it into your life. I think a big part of this, you probably said, is that uh, the, the gift is something we don't deserve. 
Amen. It's under, you read the definition of grace. The first thing it says, Mike, it's undeserved. <laughs> it's unmerited. So we don't deserve it. We can't pay for it. And yes, it's given to us as a free gift. Guys, when you really get your arms around that, it should just humble us and just, we should be just so, so grateful for what God has done. You know, it's eight o'clock. I, I, we're, we're out of time. I got one, one little part left of this. Um, and let me just say this, to receive the gift is free, but we have to acknowledge our need for it, that we're sinners. And we're also called to repent. And you remember what repent means? It means to surrender. And I can't tell you the number of verses where Jesus, for instance, the last thing Jesus says is, guys, this is the message you take out into the world. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And repentance, going back, Charlie, you're talking about knowing God. And, you know, repentance is, is, is of the heart. You don't necessarily repent in your head, even though it starts there. But this was my problem for so many years, guys. I understood the message, and I believed it was true. I just didn't want it in the heart. And this was this was this was Romans two five was true of my life. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, that was me. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. And y'all have heard me share this. You know, I, I understood it. I believed it. I just didn't want it. And it was until I waved the white flag and surrendered that I truly became a Christian. This is a good stopping place. I had some more to share. I just, we're just out of time. So any final comments or questions? Anybody we need to pray for? Um, Kathy Jacobs family. Yeah. Yeah. She was wonderful. She was an wonderful. amazing person for sure. Anybody else? Richard, uh, Tricia Kirk. Yeah, great idea. Great she idea. used to be Tricia. the head of the Exceptional Foundation and just found out about a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah, she's got lung cancer. And I don't know what stage it is. Do you, David? I don't. I just heard last night when she told me. And okay. it sounded wow. like it spread to other areas. Okay. Well, we'll pray for her. All right, so Mr. Jacobs family and for uh, Tricia. Father, thank you for uh, just the, the beautiful gospel. And we thank you for the free gift that you've given us. Lord, we, help, we, we pray and ask that you would give us a greater appreciation for what Jesus did for us at the cross and delivering that gift to us. Help us to be humbled by that, Lord. Help us to be grateful. And we, Lord, do lift up these requests. <clears throat> we pray for um, the Jacobs family of uh, losing their loved one, Catherine. Um, what a wonderful woman she was. Uh, what a blessing she was to so many. Just pray that you really bless this uh, time of celebration of her life. Um, and we also pray for Tricia, Lord. Uh, pray for you to... Uh, be with and anoint the doctors that are working with her. Uh, we pray for healing. Uh, we particularly pray that you would give her peace, that she could just rest in you. And we thank you in advance for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, guys. Hope to see you all next week. Thank you, Richard.
You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.